0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen and I'm Caroline,
0: and today we are talking about punk rock. Woo.
1: I know. I wish we could have some like shredding. Guitar going on in the background right now. I know. Yeah, for this episode, we have spiked our hair and put safety pins through our ears, just so you know. My ears bleeding,
0: <laughs> but we sterilized them. Uh, so let's talk about punk rock because we've got a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about the genre itself specifically, women in it, and of course, we got to talk about the Riot Girls exactly of the 90s. Yes, that's right girls with three r's, no i. So, punk rock as we know began in the early 70s and really came into the mainstream in 1976 with the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and punk rock fans out there are going to be like, "But what about the New York Dolls and the Stooges?" Yeah, 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 all that stuff was happening in the early 70s, but we're talking about the mainstream nineteen seventy six that's the year
1: yeah well another thing uh, about the punk rock movement is not just the popularity of these bands it is also the culture surrounding punk rock the whole look the whole outlook on everything and part of that a big part of that is the is the DIY culture
0: yeah DIY do it yourself and you say the popularity of these bands it's more like the ethos was more anti-popularity because punk was really a movement that came out of this disgruntlement of white middle-class dudes. Mm-hmm. And um they were all about, yeah, like kind of forming their own DIY media with their own fanzines that w- they would make themselves. And obviously like the whole clothing of sort of starting their own fashion trends and ripping up their clothes, making their clothes being as counterculture as possible in a way.
1: Yeah, and they really used this whole look to set themselves apart. I mean, these were like angry young dudes and women who were like, we're we're different, we're going to stand apart, we're we're fighting for something or not, or they're just nihilists, and and it's chaos and and anarchy. Yeah, and a lot of drugs. (laughs) So many drugs. Not to sound like my mother,
0: but the (laughs) 70s, wow, there's... Stay away from heroin. That's all I have to say. Yeah. Uh, But speaking of the DIY stuff, because we're going to... This fuels a lot of the conversation later on when we're talking about Riot Girls. Stephanie L. Carter, in her dissertation, Every Girl is a Riot Girl... Question mark. Exploring the intersections of Riot Girl and the third wave of feminism, both of which we'll get into in just a second. She traces, though, this DIY cornerstone of punk rock back to British and American arts and crafts movements of the late 19th and early 20th century, which was spearheaded by art critic and social theorist John Ruskin, who was rallying for the rejection of mechanization and the standardization of production that was going on at the time, and she sees DIY that's happening in the early and um, m- mid-70s that kicks off punk rock as sort of a, a revival of that. And, um, she says it's connected to punk because it's linked to the desire to equalize the value of artistic endeavors, regardless of form, and to expand access to creativity and production. Cause that's the whole thing about punk. Like, you don't necessarily need to be a guitar virtuoso mm-hmm. to play punk rock. You just pick up the guitar and you shred.
1: Yeah. And you shred. <laughs> I sound like such a square. <laughs> Well, a lot of people picking up these guitars and shredding were dudes, uh, as we said. Um, Hannah Hickman, in her essay on visual vitriol, says that punk is an unmistakably male-oriented creation that forced women to abandon their femininity. And she talks a lot about the aesthetic, the punk aesthetic, how... Yes, everybody was, you know, wearing their short, spiky hair and wearing the same ripped clothes and everything, but it was such a masculine look. And so she gets into a little bit of the issue of women having to abandon anything that was thought of as traditional femininity and trying to find that happy medium where they were punk, but they were still women, but everybody looked the same. And so she says that they used the punk aesthetic to create a discourse on female sexualization. Yeah, it's interesting when you, when you read about the history of punk rock, so much of
0: it is fueled by sex and a lot of those like early punk icons like Iggy Pop you could pull in David Bowie Lou Reed even though their music might not be as strict punk but they were all about breaking gender barriers. There was so much gender bending going on, but at the same time, when you read about the women who they were dating or really just sleeping with, like a lot of times those women were just relegated to the side. They had no part in the music whatsoever. They were cleaning the house. They were making food. And so when you think about women who are actively engaged in punk rock, they had to completely confront that that traditional gender role that was still happening even within the punk community.
1: Um, I think it's worth it to point out that it was a woman who coined the term punk rock. I had no idea, and I actually looked this up in a billion different places, because I was like, really? Is this just something convenient that they're sticking into some of these blogs and histories and everything? But uh, an article in the London Observer, it's a very, very long article about Caroline Kuhn, who dabbled in modeling and filmmaking. She's this very tall, live figure. She was very involved in counterculture in the 60s and 70s. She also worked in music journalism at uh, the Melody Maker. And her July 1976 story was the first to take on the subject of punk rock.
0: Indeed. So as punk developed, obviously there were women who were getting up and picking up those guitars and shredding all day long. And a woman named Hillary McCookery Book, and no, McCookery Book is not her actual last name. Her real name, last name is Helen uh, McCollum, now Reddington. And she was in a band called The Chiefs. And she wrote a book called The Lost Women of Rock Music because she thought women at the time were being left out of the history books and she wrote that being punk was quote something you did rather than listened to or admired or something it was about being that person yourself rather than standing back and thinking that somebody else was great
1: Right. So here's that reaction against the whole the previous involvement of women in the punk rock scene and the movement. Now there's this attitude of, okay, well, we've seen all these dudes doing this, all these white dudes with their spiky hair. No, we have something to say. We want to get involved and we want to push back against the patriarchy and the status quo. And she cites
0: uh, seminal punk rock bands, female-led punk rock bands, like The Slits, The Raincoats. Uh, you've also got Patti Smith in there, who was one of uh, the early women on the scene. Uh, Susie and the Banshees and the Modettes. Uh, and she quotes Gina Birch, who was a founding member of The Raincoats, who says that punk was revolutionary to me. It wasn't shocking. It was a great time for women because sex was taken off. And she goes into, again, that genderlessness of the punk look and the punk culture.
1: Right. And the genderlessness was actually celebrated. Birch was talking about that as a good thing because, as Lucy O'Brien, who formed the Catholic Girls, said... Uh, For women in the 70s, there was this huge pressure to conform and be ladylike and wear nice, inoffensive blue eyeshadow, which I have a quibble with blue eyeshadow being inoffensive. But anyway, um, she says that punk ran counter to women's duty to hold yourself back and not be vulgar and not be too obvious. And she she points out something that I think is really interesting. She says that as far as the reaction to women in the punk scene, she says that a lot of men really took it as a provocative stance and almost took it personally, that you were personally offending them by dressing in a way that was really anti-feminine. So this is after the whole, like, 60s, hippy-dippy, like, we're wearing long, flowing hair and we're all smoking whatever together. Now women are actually taking an active role in this music and cultural scene. And so a lot of people were kind of weirded out by that. Well, and it's ironic, too, that the men might be freaked out
0: by uh, women not appearing as feminine because some of their whole thing was kind of appropriating more female or feminized clothing and fashion to go against the mainstream, Like, like the New York Dolls who would dress very flamboyantly and wear high heels and such.
1: And Caroline Kuhn, who we mentioned earlier, talks about this whole male rebellion thing. Uh, she says that it's so much easier for a man to go out, be crazy, do drugs, rebel, and then settle down and come back into the adult male patriarchal culture. She said that that same uh, attitude doesn't extend to young women. You know, basically, if you ruin your reputation as a woman who's doing drugs, having sex, being in the music scene, then you're just done for, and that really wasn't Fair, basically. And so she said though that within the context of punk, women could go outside the societal norms and find it easier to come back in. And part of that is due in part to the feminist movement that preceded the punk movement. But when we're
0: talking about feminism and punk, like early punk in the 70s, the focus was not on that at all. There mm-hmm. was actually a feeling within the community that feminists were really just these humorless and boring women.
1: Yeah, they they weren't saying we're feminists, we're going to go, you know, out there and and get one for women. They just wanted to be doing the same thing that the boys were doing. They weren't seeking equality for their gender necessarily. They were just out there like, well, I want to play music. I want to be in the clubs and whatever. There was just this whole view of feminists as, as boring and why would I want to be that? But then once, you know, punk goes mainstream, like we said, starting
0: in 76 and Lucy O'Brien in her essay, punk rock, so what? The cultural legacy of punk, um, says that after that switch happened and punk becomes more sh- mainstream, its meaning for women was really preserved as a feminist outlet. She said it reacted against, at the same time redefined 60s feminism and resurfaced in the 90s with grunge and Riot Girl. And with the Riot Girl movement, we have the intersection of punk rock yet again and third wave feminism, which started, if you can say that a movement started, like, well, yeah, you can say that a movement started, <laughs> uh, but it officially started with uh, the publication of an essay by Rebecca Walker, daughter of Alice Walker, in the January 1992 edition of Ms. Magazine, where she declares, I am not a post-feminist feminist, I am the third wave. Now, we're not saying that Riot Girl and third-wave feminism are one in the same, but there were these two things that were coalescing at the time.
1: Right. It was definitely a reaction. Well, some people said that it was cyclical because you had the 60s feminist movement, you had punk, and then 20 years later, here comes Riot Girl. So it seems to be like the cyclical reaction against... You know societal changes that are going on, right? And
0: now a lot of people are talking about Riot Girl again with the whole Pussy Riot scandal that's mm-hmm. going on—or not scandal. Could we sit, call it a scandal? will be the right kerfuffle word for the kerfuffle the pussy riot kerfuffle that is happening in
1: Russia which we are going to talk about in depth in our next podcast episode right well so the riot girl movement uh made people just as angry as the whole women involved in punk thing did um nobody really knew what to make of it at first they called it ugly it was gross these these are angry women uh the guardian in 2009 uh like Kristen said, there's this whole look back at Riot Girl. Everybody's getting nostalgic and talking about it again. It seems to be more relevant now for various reasons that we'll get into. But The Guardian in 2009 defined it as an underground feminist punk movement that began, began in the early 90s that mocked the doe-eyed, perfectly groomed cheerleader aesthetic.
0: And it was a, a lot of frustration at the time that was happening for... Girls who were going to punk rock shows and who were in the music scene, but who were fed up with the fact that the only bands that they saw on stage and the only bands that received any kind of street cred whatsoever were all dudes, and they were essentially relegated to the back. Because if you have ever been to a punk rock show, I'll tell you what, those fists and those elbows—they are a flyin'.
1: Yeah, you can break something. You can catch
0: a like black your face. eye.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: And on top of the frustration with the music, there was a lot going on within the culture as well that was fueling the fire in these early riot girls, uh, Laura Barton, again in The Guardian, said that it was spawned by anger about society's treatment of women with domestic abuse, rape, sexuality, the need for safer streets, abortion rights and equal pay among the issues. Because all this is brewing in the late 80s, early 90s uh, with the return to more conservative values with the reagan and bush
1: administrations and a lot of these girls were just getting fed up yeah well sarah marcus who's an author and was part of the sort of the tail end of the riot girl movement uh said that the women's movement didn't have a language for reaching young women the language and ideas of riot girl have permeated the culture and made this more participatory messy vernacular feminism available to everybody and there it is again making feminism less stuffy and more appealing to young girls.
0: Right. Because I think by that time, you know, the second wave of feminism had passed and you had a lot of these, I mean, they were kind of in the same way that early punk was initially started by white middle class dudes. You have a lot of white middle class and more educated this time. It's a lot of girls on college campuses who are frustrated because they don't know, you know, their mother's generation enjoyed this revolution and they wanted to know where theirs was and speaking of this kind of vernacular feminism the way that they do- did that was not only through starting up their own punk rock movement but also with the creation of zines or which would be short for the fanzines that we talked about earlier that were part of that punk rock DIY culture.
1: Yeah exactly and a lot of um former Riot Girls or evolved Riot Girls whatever you want to Say that they are. Talk now about how blogs have kind of taken that, that, that place. Um, but zines were where it was at back in the day. And, uh, in 1988, pre Riot Girls, girls, uh, started up zines like Jigsaw, Chainsaw, and Sister Nobody.
0: Now, speaking of the feminist punk scene, Jigsaw, in 1990, A person named Toby Vale wrote a piece in it talking about her frustration that, quote, punk rock is for and by boys mostly. Now, Toby Vale was at that time a member of this new band that had started up called Bikini Kill, which was the seminal Riot Girl, punk rock band that formed in 1989 with Vail Billy Karen, Kathleen Hanna who kind of became the default spokesperson for that although she might cringe if she were to hear that right now. Uh and Kathy Wilcox.
1: Yeah, and that band released its first demo tape called Revolution Girl Style Now, which actually became kind of the catchphrase for the whole movement. Uh, vale called it a call for all girls to start bands and zines and participate in the making of independent culture.
0: Yeah, and then continuing this whole zine history in 1991, Kathleen Hanna publishes the first issue of Bikini Kill, the zine. And then just going on is another example of how this DIY zine culture intersected with the music. Also in 1991, uh, fellow zine makers Allison Wolf and Molly Newman, who met at the University of Oregon, started up Bratmobile, which was another one of the huge Riot Girl bands.
1: Yeah, and the movement really gets rolling in August of 1991 because Girls' Night kicks off K-Record's International Pop Underground Convention. And that's kind of, it starts to be a little bit of the tipping point right there.
0: Yeah, I mean, thinking now of, oh, you know, there's a headlining night where it's all girls' bands and, you know, it's going to be loud and it's going to be in-your-face and aggressive. We might think, uh, okay, no big deal. But in 1991, even though it's not that long ago, it was a huge Huge deal. And, um, that same year, allegedly, there's been some dispute over when the first actual Riot Girl meeting took place, but supposedly it was held in DC of that year when Bikini Kill was on tour in town. Uh, and at the same time, too, like with these Riot Girl meetings that are happening up, it reminds me of the whole consciousness raising aspect of second wave feminism that was going on. So you have all of these little threads that are coming together with punk rock.
1: Yeah, and there is there is some discussion out there about where the riot grrrl movement started. Was it out west with uh Bikini the Bikini Kill Ladies Uh, over at evergreen state college or was it in the east coast on the east coast out in dc
0: yeah because evergreen state college is in olympia washington and we have seattle nearby and what's going on in seattle all the grunge that's coming up there with nirvana etc and uh... in nineteen ninety two though riot girl starts to get mainstream coverage first l a weekly covers it and then usa today and newsweek also cover it and it starts actually make the Riot girls uncomfortable they don't want to go mainstream punk is about the counterculture not about being palatable for everybody
1: and they were also worried about losing control of their message and so they started this whole uh, kind of media blackout nobody was supposed to talk to anybody they were trying to control their own message and really what that led to is a greater misunderstanding of of what they stood for what they were performing for, you know, it became like, oh, well, these women are just making terrible music when really, as much as the bands were a huge part of the Riot Grrrl movement, the music wasn't even the whole story. Right. And so their whole message kind of spun out of control and then you end up with the evolution of this movement which leads us all the way and we'll talk I mean we'll talk a little bit more about the evolution but it really leads us all the way up to the late 90s when the Spice Girls take control. Right, that's the thing that that was the fear about Riot
0: Girl going mainstream because without the internet and the blogosphere, you know, Riot Girl would not have necessarily happened right now because we, you know, it was fueled by Letters being mailed back and forth, zines being produced in very small numbers and handed out at shows, at specific venues, and spreading the word about what was going on in a very grassroots kind of way, of having to set up these collectives in D.C. or Olympia or wherever so that you could get together face-to-face and talk about all these issues that were going on. And for a lot of the women like Kathleen Hanna and the Bikini Girl girls, this was the first time that they were really able to openly discuss issues about sexuality and their body and violence against them. And for a lot of these girls, this was the first time that they were really able to tackle those issues of sexuality, of abortion, of dating violence, things that really real things that were happening. But in the way that we have the Internet now and all the blogs that we can talk about it ad nauseum, there was no outlet before Riot Girl.
1: Yeah, and this was definitely a way to meet other women and young girls and think, okay, I'm not alone in this. I'm not the only one who's frustrated and feeling, you know, like everybody's against me, basically.
0: Right, and it was also undergirded by the fact that a lot of this was happening around college campuses. A lot of these girls were, you know, becoming well-versed in feminist theory and, you know, thinking more about the male gaze and what that meant and how it translated to uh, this punk culture that they were very much a part of.
1: Yeah, well, you know, we talked a little bit about how uh, the riot gr- girl culture has sort of rekindled, um, especially with the Pussy Riot stuff going on in Russia, um, this pushback against... The, the politics and the culture over there, it's gotten people talking about uh, previous feminist movements over here. And so an NPR story uh, asked, you know, is the rekindled interest because of just nostalgia? Are, are people like Kathleen Hanna just taking a look back and thinking, oh, that was fun? Um, or is it part of something bigger? And the hope... Uh, is that it's a moment of recognition similar to the one that launched the movement in the first place, the girl movement in the first place. The concern, as Sarah Doer, who's a musician and Portland State University professor, is that the interest is just a nostalgic longing for authentic community rather than a practical engagement in radical politics.
0: And I think that makes a lot of sense that concern that um that Sarah Doe expresses because, you know, even though we have platform, endless platforms, online to express our feeling, our feelings and our politics um it's so fast-paced you know it, it's almost like you can send out a tweet and that's all it is it's not actual feet on the street so i can understand why there is um there's some concern about you know what do we have now with it. Because also, too, the Riot girl movement didn't last that long. Mm -mm. By 1996, it was over. Bikini Kill was over. The movement was pretty much over. At that time, it was unfortunately being (laughs) co-opted and reconverted into... Yes, the Spice Girls, um, and no, I'm not saying that the Spice Girls were Riot Girls. Don't don't, <laughs> don't misunderstand me. But it it flared up, and then because of the mainstream coverage, it kind of it kind of dissipated.
1: Yeah, but it has had really interesting effects um, because as those Riot Girls grew up. Went wherever they went, went to college, got jobs. It's it's reemerged as something else. Now these women are looking at younger girls and saying, how can we help? So now you have things like the Girls Rock Camp Alliance. And you have Lady Fest, where bands get together and say, we're going to celebrate women. We're going to celebrate women and rock.
0: Yeah, and uh, Kathleen Hanna also... Uh, made a documentary um in 2011 called Who Took the Bomb? La Tigra on Tour. And La Tigra was a band that she was in post-Bikini Kill. And she made this documentary because of concern about the erasure of the 90s feminist movement. Because, you know, at the time, she was one of the main ones who was afraid of overexposure and was worried about being misrepresented. But at the same time, she's looking back and saying, oh, but I didn't I didn't document it as a result.
1: Yeah. And so now she says that she's making good art and wants people to actually see it since uh, they stopped performing together. So she wanted a record of, hey, here, this band existed and we were doing cool things. Yeah, and for anyone who's
0: living in New York, you can see an example of the preservation of Riot Girl, uh, because in June 2011, uh, Kathleen Hanna and other Riot Girl musicians donated personal papers, letters, zines, images, and journals to the Fails Collection at NYU's Bopst Library for a Riot Girl archive, which I
1: think is pretty cool. Yeah. And Sarah Marcus, as we mentioned earlier, is one of those people taking a look back, and her book, Girls to the Front, I just read a preview of it. I didn't read the whole thing, but it is, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. And it really examines the rise and fall of the whole movement and the whole, the explosion, how it spawned all these different movements, like I mentioned with Girls Rock and Ladyfest. Yeah. And again,
0: you know, when they, when people ask former Riot Girls, although that's another thing though, too. Should we call them former Riot Girls? Is it once a Riot Girl? Always a Riot Girl? Are we Riot Girls, Caroline? I don't know. I mean, is it more of, yeah, I mean, that's another question I have. Maybe, I hope there's a riot girl out there listening who can, who can tell me that. Um, but, yeah, when you, t- when you talk to, uh, Carrie Brownstein or Kathleen Hanna about this, they say, I don't know that, w- you wouldn't necessarily
1: need it now because you have the internet. Kathleen Hanna also said, you know, she tells people, don't force it. Like, should we, you know, reignite Riot Girl? And she says, well, don't force it. It was organic, so if something like that's going to happen, it needs to just happen. And so she said this in the wake of the whole pussy riot uh arrest and subsequent sentencing um, that maybe this is the spark.
0: Yeah, and I think that it's uh it's telling that in the early 90s there was what these women felt like was a cultural war going on against women and now with the look back at riot girl the nostalgia for it with even though i mean yes it's spawned by you know or triggered by something going on in russia with pussy riot but at the same time all these conversations are happening in a cultural climate that yet again is talking about reproductive rights and women's bodies a whole lot Mm -hmm. in a way that I haven't heard in a long time in terms of people making decisions on our behalves about what we should do with our bodies. So I think that it is, like you said earlier, uh, maybe part of a cycle Mm -hmm. that's going on. And maybe we do need Riot Girl. Yet again. We
1: need a caped crusader.
0: Well, Riot Girls, uh, I should yeah. say. It's not, not, a, not a single Riot Girl to save the day. So uh, maybe for to close things off, we talked about uh, punk rock, Riot Girls, and obviously we cannot fit in the entire history of women in punk rock and Riot Girls into a single podcast. But if you want to listen to some seminal ladies in punk, how about some suggestions? Flavor Pill had a list, uh, courtesy of Judy Berman, of iconic women in punk to listen to. And she names Courtney Love, who, funnily enough, the 1995 Lollapalooza got in trouble because she punched Kathleen Hanna in the <laughs> face. Yeah, so Courtney Love and Hole, still, you know, give it a listen. Kim Gordon, Sonic Youth. Uh, PJ Harvey, Carrie Brownstein, who you can also see on the fabulous Portlandia. Woman can do anything. Uh, Beth Ditto of Gossip is one of the current punk rock icons. Um, Debbie Harry from Blondie. Uh, Susie Sue. Joan Jett, of course, one of the originals. So there's a lot out there to listen to. I wish we could have a uh, just all this music streaming in the background
1: yeah well I want to hear from people who were part of the movement yeah people who were at the punk shows ripping their jeans and whatever spiking R- their hair
0: ripping jeans making zines <laughs> <laughs> ah yeah and people good. who are making zines today I know that, that zine making is not a relic of a bygone era it's still happening and I think it's uh, it's great keep it keep the DIY
1: stuff yeah. going and send us some yes yeah, <laughs>
0: maybe we should start a zine maybe huh so many things to do so send us your letters at discovery.com and we have a couple of letters to share with you today about our episode on friends with exes can you be friends with the people that you've loved wait <laughs> <laughs> yes you can so I've got one here from Joshua, and he writes, I had finally decided literally today to request this episode. I'm so glad to hear about how weird yet normal I am. My ex fiance and I are best friends to this day. A brief timeline, three years dating, three years engaged. She breaks up with me. We take about a month off with no contact before deciding, why not stay friends? We were great friends. So for the first couple of months, I do admit I had hopes we would someday get back together, but it turns out we're so much better now just as friends than we ever were before. I know this puts me in the minority, but that's certainly not new to me. We've only been best friends, or been only best friends, not... Fiancés and lovers for about three years now. She's seeing someone else, and I'm happily single. If I could give a piece of advice to men who are in my position, it would be to not fool yourself about expectations. Don't fake friendships with a secret desire to get back together, or you will pay for it in the long run. And if you decide to read this on air, and we did, shout out to
1: listener Amanda, the best, best friend I could ask for. Huh, that's really sweet. That's nice. I like that. Okay, this is from Serenia. She says that out of all my friends, I think I'm the only one who's been able to maintain some form of friendship with most of my exes. I've been the dumpy in all but my last relationship, and I gotta say, it's a lot easier to stay friends when I've been dumped. My dumper story. When someone breaks up with someone else, it's usually because they're over them, so as the dumpy, I just need some time to get over the guy, and our friendship would continue as it was before we dated. But as the dumper, I'm clueless as to when my ex-boyfriend will be healed enough to be friends. I broke up with him more than a year ago. We were together for nine months, and I don't go out of the way to talk to him. He followed all of the rules that you mentioned in the podcast, including blocking me on Facebook. But when we do see each other, I'm polite, and I give him cordial greetings with the occasional joke or banter. He tends to keep his eyes away and avoids extended conversation. I understand what he's going through, but I wish there were some way for us to get over this awkward stage. My friends poke fun at me and tell me I'm crazy for wanting to stay friends with all of my exes, but I honestly hate feeling awkward around a person I once shared good times with. My dumpy story... I had a brief four-month relationship with a guy in high school who is so far the only one to have broken my heart. She's 22, by the way. Our friendship has been on and off since we broke up four years ago because every time we start getting close, my feelings for him reemerge. He's so charming. And sometimes even he starts feeling like he wants to get back together. To this day, I sometimes reminisce and wish we'd worked out, but then I make sure to remember all the reasons our relationship failed and all the ways we're incompatible now that we've grown up a bit. Your podcast really hit home, and I definitely see that I have to set some boundaries with both my last ex and the high school ex. I need to avoid hurting the former and being hurt more by the latter. So thank you for your uh, perspective, Serenia.
0: Indeed, and thanks to everyone who's written in. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. And don't forget, uh, our next episode is going to be on Pussy Riot, so tune in for that. In the meantime, hit us up on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast, and why don't you check out our brand spanking new blog over at Tumblr, where Never Told com. And why don't you go enrich your brain over at our website. It's HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.